Amen. One of the popular evangelism programs that's been out for many years trained me to ask a, a question at the beginning of the presentation, a question that goes like this, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? Many do not know that, of course. And some people think that the question itself is presumptuous. Now, since, as Peter tells us, assurance is not only possible, but in fact strongly commanded, it's not arrogant to seek it. In fact, we could say it's arrogant not to seek it. And it's not good for us to ignore it. It is good for us to find it. It is one of the many benefits that we read here that come from growth in grace, from knowing and trusting in God's exceedingly great and precious promises, and from having God's Spirit bring God's truth home to our hearts and experiencing Christian growth. Not only does this bring us assurance, Peter says, of our calling and election, but it also produces, he says, a fruitful Christian life. It makes us strong and steady that we should not stumble. It gives us spiritual vision and presence of mind, lest we forget important things. It provides a rich entrance and welcome into glory. In so many things, we're not actually seeking assurance. We are, in fact, just seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, it, and in that process, finding assurance with all those other blessings as well. And it is a wonderful thing to be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have uh, finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded and he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. That is a wonderful, blessed persuasion. But as I've already said, there are many reasons, theological, practical, various difficulties involved in making our calling and election sure. I'd like to take up some of these with you today in order to try to overcome any lingering, remaining, common difficulties of assurance of true assurance, although my first point to you is actually on false assurance. So let's consider first the matter of false assurance. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the most common problems we find in the Bible, which the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself had to deal with, is not true believers wondering whether they are in fact true believers that, that's in there. But by far the main problem that we find are ungodly people who nevertheless have full assurance, unshakable confidence that all is well with them, even if they're living like the devil. And now, this is not Paul's concern here in chapter 1, which is a very positive, encouraging uh, push toward growth. But when we get to chapter 2, he will say, look, these, these ungodly teachers have already flooded the church uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But there also were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many 
Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the truth will be blasphemed. So this is the problem of false assurance, and there's many people selling tickets to that dismal trip. Peter mentioned that problem, I suppose, in chapter 1, verse 4, about the promises that we've received, that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. That's a positive way of saying it. But we could also say that negatively, friends, if there is no difference between you and the corruption of the world, if you are reveling in the corruption of the world through lust that Peter describes, I want to shake you out of any confidence you have today. The Bible says in many places, do not be deceived. For instance, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. You cannot claim forgiveness without repentance. You cannot claim eternal life without conviction of sin. You simply cannot say that you are the Lord's while you are firmly in the grip of the devil. Such people may indeed have raised their hand at a meeting and walked an aisle, signed a card, prayed with earnest feeling, and maybe even still go regularly to church. And yet, as the years pass, their Christian friends and family are weighed down because the very things that Peter says describes Christian growth are, are not there. And this is a great problem because people with a false assurance are some of the hardest to reach with the gospel. And if this is you, I have to just tell you, wake up! You have to say, what must I do to be saved? And flee to Jesus and learn the very first things from him again. As Paul wrote to Timothy, the, the solid foundation of God stands with this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, here in the South, we all know people that have been saved many times, right? That whenever there's a church revival... People will go to the altar and get saved. I even heard of one man who was saved 17 times. And there was one meeting where the evangelist was making an altar call for all who wanted to be filled with the Spirit. And this man went forward again. And a woman from the congregation said, Don't fill him, Lord. He leaks. <laughs> well, when God saves us, you see, he does so much more than simply say, Stop sinning. No, no, no. He gives us a new heart, a heart that believes these exceedingly great and precious promises of God, that such things are far better than the promises of sin. You know, sin promises you some pleasure. But the new nature wants God's promises more than what sin promises. And, and, and so we still then have some conflicting desires so that we still don't do what we want to do. But we are freed from the dominion or ruling power of sin's promises. And that's what Peter means, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. Sin promises a kind of reward. And by nature, we just desire the reward. There's no conflict at all. But now there's this conflict because we are gripped by vastly superior promises of infinitely superior pleasures and joys, which may be a little far off in some cases. 
And so there's this ongoing battle between the new nature and the old nature, between the present flesh and the spirit that yet seeks to overcome. And yet the promises of God, the divine power, these things have filled our lives to give us, as Peter says, life and godliness. Life, this eternal power that God has already begun to work in our souls, giving us new life, and he will perfect it until the end. He's made us alive in Christ. And godliness, the external outworking of that inward life, his divine power has given us everything for life and godliness. And so there's this new direction because of the internal power of God at work within us. So, I want to take away your assurance. If you're trusting in yourself or living like the devil, we are all very, very far short from where we should be. But there is a great difference between being the Lord's and being the devil's. And my first point to you is this. If you are getting worried when you read the Bible and you come across such passages that say, don't be deceived or you read Peter and it says that you've escaped the corruption of the world through lust, and you think, I don't know if that's true. Well, I don't want to give you assurance. I want to give you true hope and eternal life from a real Savior, that you might lose a false confidence and beat your breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and lay hold of these exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world through lust. Life and godliness are yours in Jesus, following Peter's directions to start where you must start. And so if you do these things, you will never stumble, and so an entrance will be abundantly supplied to you. I don't want to take any assurance away where it should be taken away. Um, I don't want to withhold comfort to God's own children. And I begin with this matter of false assurance because it is such a big matter and we do come to it in chapter 2. I didn't want to leave it out. But Peter's emphasis here is for saints, for them to give diligence, to seek and find a true assurance. And so my next uh, four points are all for you. Why don't people have an assurance if they've known the Lord, if they've even had this tremendous experiential change in the direction of their lives, why do they not feel more saved? Why do they struggle? Why do they wonder? Well, there are many reasons. I'd like to take up four common ones that uh, I can correct based on Peter's chapter here. First, relying on a decision not a direction. Relying on a decision, not a direction. I mentioned this last time, that you do not make your calling and election sure by a decision, but by a direction. A direction that Peter describes here as making every effort to add to your faith certain things, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth. And he says if we have these things, and if we are increasing or abounding or growing in them, and blessing others fruitfully, we will find ourselves not only productive, but also assured, reaping a rich reward. 
And this direction that he recommends to us here is how we are able to find assurance, not a decision, but a direction. Now you say, we may have not gone very far down that road. Well, I think all of us have made very little advance, it's true. But we must not despise the day of small things. Peter emphasizes this direction, the growth. And some people, understanding this, nevertheless have come from a tradition that has a strong emphasis on the moment of decision. And they may be lacking assurance. They've gone and they've heard testimony after testimony that, that people, they went into a meeting, one kind of person, they went out another kind of person. And, and that happens. Praise the Lord. But then when such people are asked to give their testimony, <clears throat> well, they feel rather sheepish. They, they, they didn't have a moment of crisis. Maybe your Christian life has been uneven, up and down, um, unclear. Maybe you look back and say, well, you know, maybe when I was younger I was a Christian then, but, but then something else happened, and maybe I was a Christian then, but then there was that big dip, and then I came up, and maybe I was a Christian then, and then something else happened. Well, I just don't know, and, and, I, and I can't put my finger on it, but am I really a believer? Well, if you look in the Bible, you will find the up-and-down experience is pretty common among God's people. Certainly, that was David's experience. Now, his testimony begins very early on. He said, you made me trust on you while on my mother's breasts. I was cast on you from birth. So he had faith in, from his nurture, uh, given to him with his mother's milk, as it were. And there were certainly some ups and downs in his life, but he was a man after God's own heart. And the important thing when we read the lives of the saints and other things is not when the new life began, which is often a mystery for us when we re read of the saints, but the, the most important thing is not when it began, but that it's there now. Okay, so we, we have these trees out front. I, I don't know when they were planted, but I know for sure they're living trees. And how do I know? It's because of their evident growth, because of what comes from them. And that is what Peter is recommending to us. That is what you need to know. You do not need to be able to sing, I know when I have believed. You need to be able to sing, I know whom I have believed. That's the key. Some people remember well and can sing of the hour they first believed. And what a blessed hour that was. Others don't. No matter, have you believed? Maybe it was, like in my case, over the quarter of, course of some months that God dealt with my soul. I would have seasons of conviction, seasons of confusion. I'd say, what's wrong with me? I don't know. I'd go back like a dog to its vomit, but then, then I couldn't go back. I just don't know the hour I first believed. No matter. Have you believed? Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That 
is something on which we can find assurance. Not a decision, but a direction. Are we resting and growing and fruitful in Jesus? Peter says that's how you'll know. Now, third point, some people lack assurance because they are living on feelings, not faith. Living on feelings, not faith. This is a much bigger uh, uh, topic. By the way, I'm only taking a little piece of it, but in biblical counseling, this is a very, very, very important subject that Christians so often are trying to live their Christian life out of how they feel today rather than as obedient Christians to what they know is true. We need to live by faith, not by feelings. Feelings are meant to follow faith and to help faith. Peter takes this up later in his letter, verse 19 of chapter 1, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to give heed to as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, you give heed to what is true until those feelings follow the facts of your faith. You cannot allow your emotions to become your spiritual guide through life. Um, Samuel Rutherford memorably put it this way, your heart is not the compass Christ sails by. Your heart is not the compass that Christ sails by. And we do not rest our life and assurance, certainly, on how we feel. We rest our whole case on what is true. Your faith may be very weak indeed, but it is not your faith that was crucified for you. Christ was crucified for you. Nevertheless, it's a great struggle. I understand. For those whose emotional makeup, whose natural emotional makeup is frankly a cross that they must bear, that they must drag every day of their Christian life. All of us do find ourselves, we have to deny ourselves, even and especially our feelings, and take up our cross and follow Jesus anyway. And then we may find that even our feelings are following or helping us. But I tell you that some of the most eminent Christians, people you, you would have imagined are well beyond the struggle, in fact, wrestled their whole lives through the melancholy and associated doubts and struggles with assurance about the truth of the Bible or more often the genuineness of their own faith and God's acceptance of them. John Bunyan, of course, such a marvelous author, three large, thick volumes, not a page that isn't worthy of your consideration. But Bunyan was just such a Christian. And he had a tremendous struggle up front, and that struggle kept coming back to him. Doubting Castle was not invented whole cloth. He's telling his own story in that account of the struggles of the salvation of his own soul. Bunyan found himself beaten without mercy. He was Mr. Fearing with his daughter much afraid. Bunyan found himself, no matter the power of his conversion, no matter the reality of his walk with God, from time to time at least, in Doubting Castle. And Christians do experience the disappointments, the frustrations, the loneliness of their faith, and so on. At times, it just doesn't feel real to us. God's presence, His promise, His power... 
they, they don't only seem a million miles away. It's, it's, it's hard to see if they're real at all. And this must call forth faith, to live in the light of what we know is true, even if we don't feel like it at the moment. For a Christian living is a life of faith. It's based on the confidence that certain things are in fact true. We have received exceedingly great and precious promises that will not fail us. We must live on such faith and not feelings. A fourth and common trouble with assurance is right at the heart of Peter's concern here. It's immaturity. Immaturity. Peter is urging us to grow in order that several good things will happen to us, a fruitful, well-grounded Christian life um, with uh, strength and vision and the assurance that this brings. He says, therefore, that we must give all diligence to add to our faith virtue and such, for if these things are yours and abound, uh, you're not going to be unfruitful or barren. Um, therefore, be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure in context by maturing, by growing in fruitfulness. So, doubt is a fact of the believing life. And when we struggle with doubts, we are doing what believers do and what believers have always done. Matter of fact, I found out this week that the word doubt in English, has, in many languages, actually is from the word two or double, same word, because we are kind of of two minds. It's not necessarily that we think something is wrong or that it's out, but that there's this other thing in there. And this is a common Christian experience. It's not necessarily a bad sign when we are wrestling and even doubting in the way that Christians doubt. And we are worried about the things that Christians are worried about and wishing we could believe more firmly, as Christians always do. Because by such wrestling and struggling, we do go stronger and resolve things and grow. And so that the testing of our faith is what God uses often to strengthen it. He, he puts it under pressure to harden it. And as we wrestle and grow, we find ourselves stronger and stronger also in assurance. Maybe an analogy will help. Suppose somebody came up to you with a pouch full of what they said were valuable diamonds, and they offered to sell them to you at an incredible price. Well, you'd be skeptical. You'd pour them on the table, and, well, they look like beautiful diamonds. But before you pull out your checkbook, I hope you would decide to do a test knowing that diamonds are the hardest gem, if I'm not mistaken, you take out a hammer from the shop and begin to hammer them relentlessly. And if those diamonds shattered to bits, you would conclude they weren't diamonds after all. Because it's of the nature of a real diamond to be harder than hammers. They may have looked like diamonds, but they weren't, and the fact that they were destroyed proves that they weren't. And so it is in the matter of genuine faith. Genuine faith can take all the hammer blows and fiery trials of life, and they can't destroy it. <laughs> Might bury it for a few minutes, but not destroy it. P Peter explains it that this very way in his first letter, not with diamonds, but with gold. He says you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials so that your faith, which is refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so this immaturity that needs, frankly, testing and trying and wrestling and growth and fruitfulness and maturity, through the process, you will gain a strong assurance, but you can't be plucking up the roots of a tender plant to see if it's actually alive. That's not the way that it goes. You have to let it grow and water and fertilize and care for it and protect it from the, from the weather as much as possible, right, to, 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 to have it grow. And then you know it's, it's alive and well. The same trials that destroy false faith will refine, strengthen, and harden true faith over time. And so we must press on to maturity, point four, if we find, if we find assurance, to find assurance. Finally, fifth today, Peter mentions in verse 9 the possibility of forgetfulness. That he who lacks these things, um, uh, the things uh, for assurance here, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and so forth, he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. This forgetfulness has the power to rob us of daily assurance. Um, These are believers. They're, 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 They're true saints. They have been cleansed from their old sins, but they are short sighted to the point of blindness, forgetting what Christ has done for them. Every day, in various ways, our faith is under assault, and sometimes we're so distracted, it's, it's hard for us just to remember who we are, whom we serve, where we're going, and how we're getting there, and what we hope will be the reward at the end when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. But it requires no thought, no effort to neglect so great a salvation. Many of you will remember that scene in The Silver Chair, that novel of the Narnia story, when the witch queen of the underworld tried to make the children believe that her dismal kingdom below was, in fact, the only world that really was. And what the children remembered of a far better world above was only, in fact, a dream And as she talked to them, her words and the smoke of her fire acted like a drug. And in the background, the whole time was the sound of the mandolin she was playing, the music that was just drowning out the sound of their own thoughts. This is Lewis's illustration of the problem of forgetfulness. We forget what we know, what we ourselves have experienced. We forget all the reasons that we believed in the first place. And this world below is like a drug, and the words that we are hearing from every direction are confusing our thoughts, and the lulling siren song of the world makes us forget the Lord that has redeemed us for a reason, who's purified us in order that we might bear fruit to holiness. Lewis, I say, was writing this out of his own experience. He was a man, you'll know, that had to be convinced against his will of the truth of the Christian faith. And when he was convinced, he became a man who wrote books recommending the faith that have brought multitudes of others to believe in Christ. But 
Lewis, as any Christian, had to wrestle with his own doubts. And in a letter to his childhood friend, Arthur Graves, he confessed this about himself. He wrote, I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convinced me of God's existence, but the irrational dead weight of my own skeptical habits and the spirit of this age and the cares of the day steal away all my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. That scene with the witch queen is Lewis's picture of Doubting Castle. Aslan, in the story, had told the children, there are things you must remember, things that are very important. He'd warned them. He'd prepared them for this. He'd given the children four signs to remember and repeat. But, but sometimes things look very different at the moment. And we forget. And we must take pains to set these things before us again and again. This is Peter's desire. He mentions it, mentions it several times. Just where I left off reading, he mentions it twice. Chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent, in this body, to stir you up by reminding you. Uh, verse 15, moreover, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. We are prone to forget. It's not even that we don't believe. But like, like Lewis, we, we just don't feel like it many times. And the spirit of the age and the skeptical habits and the cares of the day conspire so that we are, become short-sighted. We don't look ahead. We've become forgetful of what Christ has done. And we need to have our spiritual vision renewed. We, we, need, we need to have our memory restored. Point five, we may lack assurance when we forget. Set before yourself the truth. So in conclusion, if, as we said many weeks ago, faith is, uh, as Ryle put it, the hand that takes hold of Christ and the eye by which we look to Him and the mouth by which we feed on Him and the foot by which we come to Him and walk with Him. If faith is the confidence that we have that what God has told us is true and the promises He made will come to pass and that His character is such that we can always rely on Him to be true, the Bible also at the same time teaches us that our faith is often weak. Saving but weak. It teaches us this many places in the Gospels and especially the Psalms as a record of faith on trial, of the struggle that even mature believers have to remain steadfast in their confidence in the teeth of difficult and confusing circumstances. Such a struggle, I say, will be the experience of virtually every believer, at least at one time or another. We, no, we, we might have thought that faith 
being as important and central to the whole Christian life as it is, that it would be presented in the Bible as a sure thing. Something that would come in and govern the heart and life without rival. But the Bible assures us this is not so. It won't be so for any believer. I hope you are grateful. I I certainly am that the Bible is such an honest book. So forthright as it is about life's difficulties for the children of God. And the Psalms are particularly honest, very full of the experience of Christian doubt, at least a struggle with assurance. The Bible's own prayer book recording struggles of God's people to to be sure that God is actually there and that what He's told them is really true and that He would, in fact, keep the promises He's made and that the future would unfold as He has assured us it will when it sure doesn't look like it. And time and again we find David or another psalmist praying and praying and confessing that it seems like nothing but cold silence has come in return. Where, where is the Lord? Has He cast off forever? Why could He not find Him? The fact that He could remember other times when He basked in a sense of God's love and nearness only made the present situation all the more painful. How far away those days seemed. He began to wonder if the Lord cared for him. Has the Lord's love ceased? He asks, Has God forgotten to be merciful? The psalmist doesn't think that such doubts are too shameful to mention. He doesn't make the mistake of thinking that even to admit such a struggle is to speak ill of himself or God. No, he opens his mouth, he confesses his thoughts, and he agonizes over his feelings before the Lord very honestly. Now, true enough, every Christian's experience won't be the same. The trial of faith may last a short time or a long time. It may consist of doubts about God or about one's own faith in Him. Doubts may be overcome in a moment of stunning realization, as in Psalm 73, or only slowly over time, or sometimes you just don't feel better after praying, like Psalm 88. That's not the point that I want to make, though, the point is that our doubts are real and painful and unsettling, and they steal away our joy and assurance. And when they are working as they ought to work, they make us seek the Lord all the more earnestly. Greatly to desire that present experience of His presence, that that blessed knowledge to come back with power to our mind and heart. Surely, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've found yourself in this situation. And the Psalms teach us not only that real believers can pass through challenging times, but also how we must practice our faith in such times. They, they, they cause us to lay hold of God and say, God, solve this problem. We don't feel it. We don't see it. It's an agony to live through it. Oh God, where are you when I need you? Such trials and wrestlings and doubts and a lack of assurance should cause us to seek that we might find or at least to press on. 
that when we have come to a more fruitful faith and firmer ground, we would find that we have not only grown in assurance, but every other blessing that Peter has described to us. In any case, this I know. Fresh new faith, as wonderful as it is, is still an immature and often a weak faith that simply cannot sustain a long, robust, fruitful Christian life. And no wonder then that there are so many things in life, so many things in the Bible, calculated to test and try our faith. For only a tested faith that grows stronger in trial, that is forged in the fire, can carry us fully, fruitfully, and joyfully to the end of our journey. How little we have advanced, as we should have. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Reminding us something very important. You're going to heaven not because you're good enough to do so. And if that is your self-confidence, it's keeping you away from the only Savior which is not you, but Jesus. It's not the healthy he came for. They have no need of a physician. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and all clear thinking on assurance must start here. And if you have lacked assurance, but desired it, if you have doubted, but wanted resolution, if you have struggled, but longed to see God work, these are the very things he has appointed for your goodness and growth. And so even as Christians, our assurance may come and go. But through these things, these things we advance. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Assurance comes and goes. He remains the same. His oath, His covenant, His blood are the only things that will support you in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We come to this table in order to find the only true solid rock on which we may take a firm stand that through these fightings and doubts and trials, fightings without fears within, that through these things that He would refine us, purify us, make us all the more fit vessels for fruitful grace. Let's pray together then. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would forgive us for making so very little progress in the faith, for doubting such a God and such a true word, for finding so many reasons to question ourselves even without taking the comforts which you have offered. We pray that you would restore a good, a right spirit within us, that those who have wrestled perhaps for years, perhaps most painfully in these last weeks as this subject is brought out, that they might see a glimmer of hope to be found not in themselves, but in what you are doing through this very process. May you provide the hope to them that even if they have lost hold of you, that you have not lost hold of them. That is a blessed thing indeed to learn. May 
such concrete realities as this bread and this cup bring to us home again the concrete realities of our union with Jesus Christ from which we can never be separated or severed, that we are his members and that he will safely bring us to heaven. For it's in his name.